0: Our your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You're all originals. You've all made America better, a better place, and you've made it seem a better place in the eyes of the people of the world. I'm Ian Wilder. I'm Fiona Hatch. I'm Sarah Nels. I'm Tyler Katzenberger. And I'm Allison Keeley. You're listening to 1050 Bascom, a podcast brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. Welcome to 1050 Bascom. Today's guest is Mikhail Troitsky, professor of practice in Russian studies at UW-Madison. An expert on Russian foreign policy and Eurasian politics, Troitsky previously taught at universities in Moscow and St. Petersburg before coming to UW. He joins us today to discuss recent developments in the Russian-Ukraine
1: war and whether democratic change is on the horizon in Russia. We hope you enjoy today's discussion. Professor Troitsky, thanks so much for joining us let's jump right into questions
0: yeah can you just kind of maybe talk us through uh the history uh, of this kind of unexpected regime change and why some believe there might be a window of opportunity to establish democratic principles in russia in the foreseeable future
1: yeah i think you're right that uh, we need to look uh, into history uh, to make sense of uh, democratic change um, (laughs) Um, possibly occurring in Russia. So Russia did have uh, uh, experience with several junctures in its 20th and 21st century history, including the Bolshevik revolution and then the collapse of the communist regime and the breakup of the Soviet Union and then the appointment of uh, Vladimir Putin as Russian president in 1999 and then his decision to start... uh, a uh, full-scale uh, war with um, Ukraine in 2022. So in all these uh, uh, bifurcation points um, abrupt regime change happened uh, at least twice. So it happened in 1917 uh, during the Bolshevik coup and then in 1991 when the Soviet Union uh, broke up. In 1999 and 2021 uh, Russia had uh, periods of major political turmoil, but the regime uh, survived the shock. Uh, So both 1917 and 91 were uh, characterized by war and the widespread feeling that the old regime has run its course uh, and uh, that it needs to be reformed and that there's a crisis of governance in Russia. So today we have a war, uh, a regime that at least half of the population would agree has run its course, and some would even question its legitimacy. Uh, So a crisis of uh, governance is indeed possible again in Russia, as the uh, recent uh, uh, mutiny uh, in Russia uh, showed. But the key distinguishing feature of the current uh, moment is that there has been no attempt at reforming the old system. Uh, So should a governance crisis occur as a result of another mutiny or a different kind of of a coup, the response to it by the Russian authorities is is likely to be uh, strongly uh, conservative, aimed at violent suppression of the discontents. So from the downfall of the Gorbachevian uh, Soviet Union uh, and of the Russian Empire, the incumbent rulers of Russia took away the fateful mistake of being weak uh, that was supposedly made by Gorbachev and and uh, Nicholas II. Uh, uh, so Nicholas, the, the Russian emperor, abdicated his throne in February 1917 which set off a chain of events that allowed um, a, a small, but uh, a brutal, a violent group of revolutionaries, uh, the Bolsheviks, to seize power. And, and Gorbachev also shied away from um, getting rid of Boris Yeltsin as his political opponent before Yeltsin became too strong uh, or strong enough uh, uh, to just you know, fire Gorbachev. From his position on the Soviet president. So the incumbent rulers of Russia are trying different responses. They're cracking down on anyone and anything in Russia that could, in their imagination, serve as uh, crystallization points for uh, resistance uh, to their regime. And it's a new proposition. And um, those in Russia, uh, and th- those, those um, Russian leaders uh, that Claim they can avoid the tumult and keep power in their hands uh, by making sure the security uh, remains the 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 the, society the Russian society remains uh, under control remains in check, and you know haggling with the West uh, over the terms of ending the war with Ukraine while you know, relying on support from China and, and neutrality of many other actors uh, uh, towards uh, Russia. So the, the, the incumbent Russian leaders claim they can pull it all off because they've learned the lessons uh, of 1917 and 1991. Uh, and so those, the, 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 so the, the changes in Russia in 1917 and 91 triggered uh, changes in the world order uh, and in 1917, Russia made peace with Germany and then, uh, and then collapsed as an empire and that resulted in the emergence of two uh, strongly revisionist states in, in Europe that eventually chose to use force to change the um, status quo that they thought was uh, um, very unfavorable, so they wanted to restore their lost greatness. Uh, and the post-1991 order was based on globalization, economic interdependence, growth, integration, peace dividend, optimism. Uh, and now the, the, the way uh, Russia uh, develops in you know, 2023 may also determine the global balance of power. Uh, so now Moscow is doubling down on its alliance with non-Western nations, but um, there are many Problems with that, um, and so uh, not only abrupt but also gradual changes uh, in in Russian identity uh, resulted in rethinking of Russia's national interests and foreign policy strategies. So we can think about communist revisionism under Stalin giving way to the um, preference uh, to the uh, uh, yeah to to, uh, uh, to the preference for moderation for moderate ways of competition under khrushchev and and then brezhnev in the soviet union or we can think of russia growing increasingly uh, resentful of what it calls uh, rules-based international order Uh, and uh, and so that russia uh, has been looking to position itself as the champion of uh, global uh, discontent so any shift whether gradual or abrupt in russia's identity may indeed uh, cause uh, Uh, changes in the international order, uh, much as it did uh, back in 1917
0: and 91. Yeah, I just have a quick follow-up on your response there. You mentioned the Russian populace a couple times, and Russian society, and how important is it, especially under the current government, under Vladimir Putin, to kind of separate the Russian people from its government, if that makes sense? You know, you, you mentioned that, over 50%, according to some estimates, of the population don't necessarily believe in this regime. Uh, how how do you, like, separate the people from the government, if, if that question makes sense?
1: Yeah, on, on one hand, you cannot separate people from the government. They have been living with that government, even if they did not elect that government, neither did they protest vigorously enough against those governments. Um, adventurous uh, and aggressive foreign policy uh, that's for sure but uh, when you think about uh, oligarchic uh, regimes uh, you see that uh, they are they have been impressively successful uh, in manipulating the the moods and the attitudes of the population uh, so you shouldn't blame uh, too much the populace for the positions they are taking given the opportunities for for brainwashing that the, the russian government um, uh, has enjoyed uh and also its effective uh, strategies uh, of demobilizing uh, political activism of generally atomizing the society and making any uh alternative any any Yeah, any alternatives look implausible and any questioning of the rationale for, you know, domestic uh, or foreign policies look uh, uh, just dangerous and uh, unnecessary. So... Yeah, but currently I I would say the the Russian population is so um, atomized and and politically demobilized that uh, public opinion has become very malleable and uh, the the Russian people are ready to follow uh, whichever leader uh, uh, shows them the way ahead and uh, explains the promise of a particular strategy, like, for example, ending the war with and trying to normalize Russia's um, international relations and domestic politics but uh, there's also uh, there's also a possibility that um, someone who will double down on Russian nationalism and the war and social mobilization in support of the war will also get uh, uh, approval and support by uh, by some by, by some segments of the population, while others will just uh, keep silent and, and uh, try to wait this uh, crisis out. So the, again, the bottom line is that the society is demobilized, uh, it's ready to follow uh, whoever shows them the way, and you should not blame the people uh, too much for not toppling um, you know, Vladimir Putin or, or his uh, regime as long as the, as long as his government has been uh, impressively successful in um, cracking down on any opposition, killing it in the butt and uh, not even giving the chance to the Russian people to raise their voice against the regime.
0: yeah, yeah, the the stent article kind of talks about uh, Russian identity in the with among the people um with this idea that some people call Russian essentialism um stent writes that russia consists of country ethnicity and language and that there are maybe different feelings and attitudes based on how individuals identify themselves based on those factors do you think that's a fair read of that situation and how do you think that kind of influences um kind of more of what you were talking about earlier
1: yeah Clearly, uh, uh, any country's foreign policy flows from its identity, from its self-perception. Uh, so, self-perception uh, defines aspirations, and aspirations define interests. And then, of course, you uh, there's that, the question of leadership. Uh, um, which is essentially about which part of that identity the leader chooses to magnify and to uh, use to rally people around in pursuit of his uh, favored, cherished uh, foreign policy uh, objectives. But uh, yeah, uh, the the evolution of Russian uh, identity writ large uh, has been a key driving force behind Russia's foreign policy. So the, uh, uh, the um, uh, slide towards um, uh, resentment of, uh, of uh, rules-based order, which Russia now says is skewed uh, grossly against its interests, that resentment has been rising as uh, Russia's uh, identity of a state that uh, has been mistreated, Uh, and that uh, has not been getting its uh, fair share of influence, especially in its neighborhood, Uh, that that kind of identity um, did impact uh, the the willingness of uh, of the Russian people to rally around uh, uh, the policy of restoring injustices and fending off imminent security threats that were Uh, that were, that the the Russian leadership argued um, existed around Russia or at least uh, to the west from Russia Um, so yeah this this, uh, resentful uh, identity the perception of Russia as uh, as um, uh, well a a separate uh, civilization or a benevolent empire that has been constantly engaged in struggle for influence uh, on its fringes with uh, other centers of power, as as uh, Russian leaders like to define it. That identity did uh, feed into the, the willingness of the Russians to support uh, um, very brisk action, uh, certainly aggressive action. Uh, against uh, against um, well Ukraine in this case uh, but uh, I think uh, restoring justice uh, is is a very um, is a very potent um, uh, argument that uh, Putin could have uh, used to rally the, the Russians around uh, um, you know maybe going into other countries like Kazakhstan or even Baltic countries, so, it, it, again, this, it, it, then it comes to the leader uh, uh, who defines specific goals, um, and the leader can also breed the necessary identity uh, to make sure uh, he has enough uh, support for his uh, foreign policy uh, projects. So, yeah, again, the bottom line is that identity does uh, impact uh, uh, policy, uh, but you also have other factors like leadership and historical predispositions and also the, the um, specific features of the domestic political system that the leader puts in place and that uh, acquires institutional um, inertia and uh, defines the, the scope of choice for that leader in uh, implementing his plans and designs abroad.
0: Yeah, as, as we kind of start talking more about contemporary Russian foreign policy, um, and especially with how, as you've kind of alluded to, shifting it's been in recent years, how do you kind of assess a nation's general foreign policy? Um, like, what tools or approaches do you, you have kind of in your toolkit as a scholar uh, that kind of can be applied to your understanding of Russian foreign policy, both historically and today?
1: To answer this question, I think we need to identify the phenomenon that we uh, really want to explain. And I think the the trend we need to explain is Russia's evolution towards a more resentful, assertive, and then you know, openly aggressive and revisionist foreign policy and uh, foreign policy begins at home so it would be a fallacy to agree with the russian officials who have long argued that moscow has only been responding to outside pressures from nato the united states and and the like while using the opportunities providing by China and other partners in the developing world, that would be, that would not uh, be an adequate um, explanation, of course. And at the same time, we cannot blame uh, Vladimir Putin for everything. Uh, So when answering the previous question, uh, I I mentioned that Putin uh, has indeed built a system, has put a system in place that proved to be robust and resilient to outside shocks. And... uh, that system has been built on on patronage clientele relationship in which you have to exhibit loyalty to your boss in exchange for uh, unaccountability in your uh, position of power. And I think it was exactly that system uh, which sleepwalked uh, Russia into war with Ukraine and the West uh, writ large. Uh, And it happened because no client within that system could ever question the rationale for for Putin's foreign policy, you you could criticize domestic policy on the fringes that was allowed. But uh, uh, questioning Russia's uh, quest for status, sovereignty, whatever it meant to the Russian people, and for retribution, for some imagined humiliation in the the past, all of that uh, was not uh, permitted. And at some point, Putin decided that he knows how to deal with the world order that uh, uh, he resented uh, and uh, how to, uh, to, to, to um, crush it, um, in a way. Uh, and before many of his clients realized how disruptive that would be for their lives, uh, Putin went ahead and used uh, the military resources that he accumulated to, to launch a war. Uh, so that would be my um, uh, agent-based explanation of Russia uh, going to war, undertaking a major um, gamble in its, uh, in its uh, foreign policy. The, again, it was about uh, demobilization, not, of, not uh, only of the of the general public, but also of all those nodes in the patronage clientele system, of all those uh, people in positions of power uh, who had fared well before the war, just following the logic of of the of the Putinist regime, of uh, uh, just um, yeah following the line, never questioning anything, and um, you know living wealthy. Uh, uh, lives with uh, what they thought were bright prospects, but at some point, uh, when the rationale of the at the top rungs of that you know system of that pyramid changed, uh, no one took notice, and and then uh, hardly anyone uh, who stood to lose from from this uh, were able to uh, um, you know to to question. Uh, the rationale of, uh, of what was going on so again demobilization of the people politically but also this patronage clientele system that allowed um, um russia to sleepwalk uncritically uh, into uh, a, a major a major um, disaster for ukraine of course but also for russia itself
0: yeah and so you know, it started officially as a special military operation, and I think it's fair to say that it's a war at this point, and Putin's acknowledged as much. Um, the question then becomes, what's next for Russian foreign policy, in, especially in the context of this war? Because it's very safe to say, I feel, that the war is not going to plan, uh, and it has not been going to plan. Um, but it doesn't seem like Russia is willing to yield. So how do you expect things will be developing in their foreign policy sphere, especially given the state of the war at this point?
1: Yeah, so the the prospects for Russia's standing in the world and its foreign policy, of course, uh, strongly depend on uh, where the war is headed and also how, how stable Russia's uh, domestic uh, regime currently is. Uh, and uh, given the, the problems and divisions uh, Ukraine is now facing and the skepticism that is growing among Ukraine's partners about continued support for Ukraine, uh, Russia will most likely try to settle on, on favorable terms. Uh, and uh, it may uh, take a, a change of approach in Ukraine or in the countries that have so far uh, supported Ukraine. Uh, but uh, uh, given that uh, so far Russia's domestic political regime has held uh, um, intact and uh, uh, no serious uh, discontent uh, has so far risen, over the war uh, against Ukraine. Uh, yeah, I think uh, Russia has a, a certain chance of waiting um, Ukraine out and uh, and uh, settling on, on favorable uh, uh, terms, but that would also portend uh, a long period of uh, isolation uh, for Russia from most of the developed uh, world and a major realignment in Russian domestic politics where there still are, um, you know, influential agents, so to say, who, uh, who look to restore uh, ties uh, with the West and uh, to continue benefiting from opportunities uh, for their families and themselves um, in, uh, in the developed world. So those people will need to rethink their uh, life strategies and political allegiances. Uh, and I'm not sure that's going to be an easy uh, process uh, for them. So are, at a certain point, there will be some reckoning with what uh, has just happened in, in, in Russian uh, relations with the outside world. Uh, but I think it's uh, as of now, it's a fool's errand really to try to predict um, you know, the, the eventual uh, outcome or how long... Any shifts uh, could take uh, again. 2022 was a major watershed, but unlike 1917 or 1991, it uh, uh, did not. Oh, in 1999 when Putin came to power. 2022 uh, has not so far not, not, has not uh, led to to a major uh, shift in the trajectory that uh, Russia was was headed. Uh, although, based on our experience, you know, from seventeen ninety one and ninety nine, uh, we can say there is indeed some potential for for such change. We just don't know when exactly it's going to happen. It can happen tomorrow, months from now, uh, and maybe years from now.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm curious because I f- I find this a little interesting. Uh you you talked a little bit about how Russia is going to have to face this isolationism if they continue at least with the war in Ukraine in the way they have been uh how much is that going to affect the people as compared to the government especially Putin right because um yeah i'm just curious because i think i agree that it's very likely that you know continuing on this path Russia is going to be looking at the least support they've had since the Soviet Union, if not earlier, um, from the outside world. So I'm just curious about how that's going to affect both their foreign policy and their kind of attitudes, but also the people.
1: Yeah, so I think you are right when you uh, assume that the uh, elites uh, have, continue to lead their lavish lifestyle and actually see themselves as uh, people that have a special entitlement uh, for for the Russian people uh, well there has been a decline in the standard of living uh, it hasn't been uh, dramatic and uh, uh, some uh, observers have pointed out that uh, There's already a segment uh, of the Russian population that is interesting in uh, protracted war uh, because they benefit from the uh, perks that are available for participation in the war uh, for some uh, and for support for the war, propagandistic support for, for others. Uh, so for these guys, an end to the war that uh, uh, is likely to result in a period of reckoning uh, would not be a, f- a favorable outcome. So they would try to uh, sustain this uh, climate of uh, extraordinary effort that uh, Russia needs to make to prevail in the war and then to um, keep resisting this pressure uh, from the West, NATO, the United States, that are supposedly out there to um, eventually uh, get Russia infringe on its sovereignty, maybe uh, even uh, uh, even uh, support regime change in Russia. So uh, again, there's there's a, a multi-layered structure of the Russian society in which uh, uh, top tiers. Uh, are uh, torn between, you know, losing something that they had previously had in uh, relations with the West on one hand, and uh, benefiting from increased um, cash flows and, and perks and maybe promotion opportunities in the course of the war. And well, the rest of the people. Um, can, I think, can can absorb much, much more in terms of economic decline. Uh, That said, of course, uh, in any country which is uh, openly at war, uh, the the social uh, um, situation and and the the economic uh, situation and also the political environment uh, uh, become uh, fragile. uh, And uh, so even Uh, Minor disturbances uh, can lead to uh, major shifts. A crisis occurring in the Middle East uh, uh, projects itself immediately onto the Russian society and uh, aggravates uh, divisions between Muslims and and Christians and and the rest of the Russian population. And uh, so it might not take a, a huge shock to um, you know, tip the system out of, uh, out of balance. Uh, but again, the, uh, the resilience that uh, the system uh, has shown so far has been surprising to uh, many observers. And indeed, it has to do with the identity that has been nourished in Russia over the decades. Uh, so people are convinced. Uh, that there has really not been any other choice than to attack Ukraine. And uh, there's no other choice right now than to just continue fighting or maybe only settling on Russia's terms uh, because it doesn't cost too much given the existential threats that Russia has uh, uh, supposedly been uh, facing uh, in and and around Ukraine. So, yeah, it's a period of flux, um, and uh, too many balls are in the air, uh, and uh, it's all hanging in in the balance as we speak.
0: Yeah, to kind of zoom out even further, um, as Russia is looking, and especially Putin, is looking to the 2024 election here in the U.S., um, it's seeming very increasingly likely especially if polls are to be trusted that we're going to be looking at a repeat of 2020 uh with joe biden against uh donald trump uh would putin like to see another trump presidency
1: well, i think it would be a safe bet to uh, suggest that uh... Putin is indeed more enthusiastic about uh, Donald Trump as US president, as anyone else, based on his track record of uh, uh, praising uh, Trump and engaging with him. Uh, I, I, but I, in reality, I think it depends whether Trump is better for, for Putin or for Russia than Joe Biden or anyone else, I think depends on what trump really thinks about russia and russia's role in helping him uh, to get elected so i think he like any politician uh partaking in a presidential election is focused on getting elected so the question is whether uh, russia can uh, uh, pose as a force that uh, helps uh, trump get elected if not ensures his victory Uh, So I think Trump has been inclined to think that Russia uh, uh, helped him get elected in 2016, and he'd be grateful. But
0: again, uh, there's also this institutions, uh, the the system that uh, uh, works in the United
1: States and churns out United States foreign policy, and uh, uh, whether Trump... uh, would be able to make uh, a significant uh, change um, in the general course of the U.S. foreign policy. I, I don't know. If you, you already see, for example, some skepticism around uh, sustained support, financial support uh, for Ukraine, and you don't need Trump for that uh, to happen. It's quite a natural course uh, of events. Uh, so, uh, by the time, but my bottom line is that by the time Trump uh, might come back to the White House, uh, we will be in a completely different situation uh, everywhere in Ukraine, in Russia, and possibly also um, in the United States, given the challenges that the country is currently facing in, in its politics and and economy and and so forth so uh, uh, again too many factors are there uh, that uh, that uh, could define the impact of a new trump presidency on the russia ukraine war or on u.s relations um, with russia it will be very different so if i were putin i wouldn't be betting on trump's uh, re-election to help me in this particular uh, situation because the situation is going to be very different
0: yeah and speaking of changing situations our last question is about um the importance that us aid has had to ukraine um there's been widespread talk on about every level of government here in the u.s about Uh, Pulling that aid from Ukraine or at least some of it Um, How important has that aid been and how significant would? Losing even some of that aid be to Ukraine
1: well here we can rely on the um, Evidence most of it anecdotal that is available uh, about the, um, the course of the war over the over the year and a half since it started and on the um, opinions voiced by Ukrainian officials I guess so the the accounts we currently uh, have of the war suggest that the u.s support has been uh, essential uh, in uh, um, in enabling Ukraine to fend off the the initial assault and the operation uh, by the Russian forces to uh, uh, seize uh, Kiev and um, uh, change Ukrainian uh, government uh, to, uh, to one that uh, would have been more favorable uh, to Russia. So there, US support uh, was instrumental. And of course, uh, ever since then, uh, the, um, you know, the weapons that the United States uh, has been supplying Uh, Has indeed allowed uh, Ukraine to push back against the the Russian forces and to hold the front at the very least. Um, And of course, uh, financial aid uh, to uh, non military financial aid to Ukraine has allowed Ukraine to just keep uh, running as an economy. So I would say, uh, I would say. U.S. Uh, uh, aid for Ukraine has been uh, instrumental uh, for Ukraine uh, to and, and allowed Ukraine to um, survive the, the initial assault and then um, keep um, uh, keep going. While uh, you know the amount provided to Ukraine by the U.S. Um, hasn't uh, so far been um, dramatic, uh, so it. Uh, It does constitute a few percent of the U.S. uh, defense budget, but uh, when it comes to the total expenditure, government expenditure in the United States, that's been pretty uh, negligible. And yet, it it still counts in huge uh, figures, tens of billions of dollars, and that indeed attracts attention of the media and by implication of, activists uh, non-governmental organizations and the general public so that uh, politicians uh, have uh, have to respond uh, it's easy to argue that tens of billions of dollars may have different uses in the US domestic context uh, and so um, so US politicians uh, have uh, now no need to uh, explain uh, all the time why they prefer spending money on uh, helping Ukraine rather than addressing um, other other issues. Uh, but again, that said, of course, uh, for uh, given the, the U.S. goal to prevent uh, Russia's takeover of Ukraine, the uh, support that the U.S. has provided, uh, not just financial but also political and diplomatic uh, rallying uh, U.S.-European allies around the mission of supporting Ukraine, that all uh, indeed helped Ukraine to um, survive and uh, keep
0: going. From
1: the 1050 Bascom crew, thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more of 1050 Bascom, give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud.